Thank you very much to all of you for coming and, and to the leadership of this Bolton Conference for inviting me and to all of you also for ministering to me and singing. Um, we prayed in the room over there a few minutes ago that God would come during those moments in worship and uh, begin a work in your hearts that would make a way for the Word so that it would have more effect and more power in each of us. And I believe he's done that and will continue to draw near and, and apply his truth to us. That's my prayer that he would. The theme of the conference is justification and the joy of God. I think it's almost impossible to exaggerate the cultural and mental obstacles that stand in the way of grasping the biblical truth of justification by faith at the end of the 21st century. I'm going to talk in the three messages that I have about the, the ground of justification tonight and tomorrow morning the nature of justification and tomorrow afternoon the means of justification and at every stage we will hit massive cultural obstacles to grasping what the Bible means by these things. And I want you to be aware of that and have some understanding of why I try to address some of those obstacles as we begin tonight because it isn't just the doctrine preached that makes the difference. It's something that removes these massive mindsets that are in the minds even inside the church that will make the difference in transforming our churches and transforming our culture. And right at the center of those obstacles is a great spiritual enemy, the devil, and I think it would be fitting if we began. I just feel the need to begin for my own self by asking God to draw near and protect us and to release his power in his word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, I love your word and I love your glory. And these people are gathered because I believe they share that heart. And we long for you to come and open our minds like you did for Peter when he declared the Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you, Lord Jesus, said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father did. And so, Father, come. Left to flesh and blood, we will see nothing. We will not be changed. There will be no power. Our marriages, our children, our bodies, our churches will be left the same or worse unless you draw near and go beyond what flesh and blood can do. And so in the name of your Son, I plead with you to pour out your Spirit upon this gathering and anoint my words that they be not false or imbalanced or unloving, but that they be true and proportionate to your word and clothed with compassion 
and allegiance to you. Make a difference now, Lord, I pray, in the lives of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the reasons that it's hard to get a whole range of biblical doctrines across to Americans today is because th there is a secular mindset that is radically different from a biblical mindset. Let me try to unpack what I mean by a secular mindset. A secular mindset is not necessarily a mindset that denies the existence of God, nor necessarily a mindset that denies even the truth of the Bible. Rather, it's a mindset that rules man into the center and rules God onto the periphery. It's a, it's a way of thinking that starts with man at the center and a cluster of needs and rights and expectations that man has and then it begins all of its thinking and moves out from that center. And it judges to be problems, things in the world and in the universe that don't fit with this be beginning, with this mindset, with this starting point, with man at the center, our rights, our needs, our expectations. And so what are understood as problems are things that don't fit with that. Or what are understood as successes are things that endorse that, that fulfill those needs, enable and establish those rights, and jive with those expectations. And so you interpret the whole universe with this beginning point of man at the center with his needs and expectations. We're born with this mindset. It is not a modern mindset, though modernity puts certain twists on it and intensifies it through the media. Nevertheless, it's not new. We were born with it. Paul calls it the mind of the flesh in Romans 8, 6. He calls us, apart from grace, the natural man. That's the way we think. We come into the world with this mindset. You don't get it. It gets reinforced every hour of the day in America through every form of journalism and television and radio and all kinds of media, books, newspapers. But you didn't get it from the newspapers. It was part of your nature. And you don't even know you have it. The world does not know they have this mindset until it collides with another one, namely the one in the Bible. And, and if, if grace, if God is not massively at work in the mind, transforming this other mindset will, will just be absolutely ridiculous. It will be rejected out of hand. It will be so foreign to the mindset that is secular that the biblical mindset won't make any headway. The biblical mindset, on the other hand, is not simply one that includes God somewhere in the universe or simply says that the Bible is, is true. That's not the biblical mindset, pure and simple. The biblical mindset begins with a radically different starting point, namely God and God's rights. An absolutely foreign concept in this nation that God has rights and God has goals and 
when you start with that at the center and then move out, you define problems in the universe very differently than if you start with yourself at the center. Problems emerge as what doesn't fit with God's intentions and God's goals and God's rights and His will to manifest God. And so you just see the universe totally differently when you begin with God at the center, His rights and His goals as the assumption of the universe. Is the basic riddle of the universe to preserve man's rights and solve man's problems? Say, the right of self-determination or the problem of suffering. Or is the basic riddle of the universe how an infinitely worthy God in complete freedom can display the whole range of his perfections adequately for all to see and if they will to worship and enjoy is his holiness and power and wisdom and justice and wrath and goodness and truth and grace the agenda of the universe is the meaning and purpose of everything to manifest God to display God, to exalt God, or are we the center? Are we the measure? Are our rights the thing to be guarded? Do we create and define the problems in the world? Now how you answer that question will determine whether or not you can understand the biblical teaching about justification. If you start with man at the center, with all of our natural tendencies of the human heart to assert our rights and our wants and our expectations, you will assess the doctrine of justification radically differently than if you begin with a biblical mindset that has God at the center with his goals and his rights uppermost in the universe. Understanding the doctrine of justification, especially the ground of it, which we talk about tonight, requires grasping the God-centeredness of God. Until you feel that God is uppermost in the heart of God, that the most passionate heart for God in the universe is God's heart, until you feel that, you won't have an adequately biblical grasp on the doctrine of justification. God does not disobey the first and great commandment. God, with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, loves God. He delights in his glory. He rejoices in his magnificence. God is not an idolater. And until you grasp that, until that takes hold of you, that God never commits idolatry. God always has himself at the center of his infinitely worshiping heart. You will not be able to make sense out of the doctrine of justification the way the Bible makes sense out of it, and especially its ground 
in Romans 3. Now, I've been trying to say these kinds of things for about uh, 20 years or so. And they, if people are listening and they haven't thought about the God-centeredness of God and that he is uppermost in his own affections, it sort of hits them like a truck. But, the, but I want to tell you, this truck is laden with fruit. And if you survive the impact, <laughs> you will eat well for a long time to come. If it's strange to you, if what I've just said is strange to you, that God is uppermost in his own affections, that God never commits idolatry, that God loves God with infinite passion, that the Sunday school papers my boys bring home are defective because they never have the words, God loves himself more than he loves you. If, 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 you, if, you, if you can survive the impact of that, then I think parts of the Bible will open to you that have been a closed book, and you may never even have known it. And it, it will probably take me three messages to get the whole thing out, and I'm sorry that so many of you will, might not be able to make it tomorrow, but I think they're taping it, and uh, it's all in the books anyway. <laughs> Maybe a few different twists here and there. I really want to encourage you to let God be God. What I'm claiming tonight now so far is that the answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism is the same for God as it is for man. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's all I'm saying. Don't write a different catechism. Don't make yourself the center of God's affections if He has required Him to be the center of yours. There's a demonic way to imitate God. Satan used it on Eve. Don't make that mistake. When God lives for His own glory, don't you interpret that to mean, well, we should imitate God, we live for our glory. The way you imitate a God who lives for his glory is to live for his glory. I was just talking with uh, my good friend Virginia Medeiros over supper, and she told me that, that uh, before we met and we talked about these things, it was as though the term glory of God was not in her church vocabulary. And I thought, no, I'm sure that wasn't true. But I think the reason that for many people, my church and that I talk to, the reason the glory of God bolts into prominence when I talk is because I talk about God's love for God's glory. Everybody knows 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We learn that when we're little. But somehow or other, it doesn't connect. It doesn't fill us. It doesn't blow us away. It doesn't knock us over. It doesn't fill those words glory with cataclysmic power. It doesn't do it. 
So you got to find words that sort of wake people up to the fact we're talking God. We're talking God here. And the way I found that awakens people to the magnificence of his glory is that God lives for God's glory. Whatever God does, he does for God's glory. God is not an idolater. God exalts God every millisecond of his life. Everything he does is motivated by the exaltation and magnification of his glory. Another way to say this is that God is righteous. Now this is, this is moving in on our text indirectly. That God is righteous. What, what is righteousness to you? I'll tell you what righteousness is as I understand it biblically. The opposite of righteousness is to value and enjoy what is not valuable or rewarding. Ultimately. The opposite of righteousness is when your valuing capacity, that heart in you that goes out and cherishes things and loves things and delights in things and craves things and wants things goes after things that aren't valuable namely anything but God righteousness is doing what's right namely craving delighting in wanting cherishing what is valuable and infinitely valuable God therefore when I say that God is righteous I mean that God never sets his infinite affections on anything less than what is infinitely valuable himself now you you no doubt, if you're reflective people, and I would think you wouldn't be here unless you are, have questions just popping in your mind about that. I think there's a panel discussion tomorrow, okay? I'll be there. And you may ask any questions you want. But that's what makes you a theologian. You ask questions. And then you reflect. God is righteous means he recognizes, he welcomes, he loves, and he upholds what is of infinite value. His infinite jealousy and energy go out towards what is truly valuable. If his affections swerved onto something less valuable, and he counted that more valuable than what is infinitely valuable, he'd be an unrighteous God. He'd be a liar. He'd be an idolater. And therefore, his infinite affections value what is infinitely valuable. In essence, here's my definition of God's righteousness. It's his passion or his joy or his delight or his commitment, his unwavering allegiance always to display and uphold the infinite value of his glory. If God ever stopped devoting his infinite energies to upholding the infinite value of his glory, then he would cease to be righteous. Let me illustrate from Isaiah 48, 9 to 11, just to give you a flavor of the dozens and dozens of biblical texts that could be called in to give you this flavor. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off, 
Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, I hear that. I used to hear this. Still do. As six hammer blows of God's God-centeredness. God's God-centeredness. Not the church's, not mine, not yours. God's God-centeredness. For my sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Hammering away that we not miss the point. The point is, God is infinitely passionate to uphold the worth of His glory. Anything that belittles or decries or scorns the glory of God, God must oppose with infinite energy if He is to be God. There would be no God worth worshiping if there were no hell. The joy of God in God and God's supremacy. The death of Jesus, as we turn to Romans 3 now, becomes the means by which God upheld the worth of His glory so that we could escape hell. Everything that I've said so far is intended to make the ground of justification in the cross understandable. It is not understandable by the secular mindset. Romans 3, 25 and 26 are a closed book to the secular mindset. The ground of justification in these verses is the death of the Son of God. But, God in these verses, Paul says, is doing something beneath and prior to the act and work of justification on which that grand work of justification rests and without which we will not have it. And we must, in our first talk tonight, get what's going on down here. What's the first thing God has to do? What's the foundational thing God had to do on the cross in order that justification could be a free gift to ungodly people without God compromising His love for His glory? I'm going to read verses 24 to 26 here. And as I read it, here's the question I want you to be asking. Romans 3, 24. I want you to be asking the question, what's the problem in the universe that the death of Christ is designed to solve? And watch your mindset as you do. Verse 24. They are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now let me just pause there and acknowledge that the gift of justification is referred to, but to note that Paul immediately passes on to what God was doing beneath that, before that, 
as a foundation for that. There's something first. There's something more fundamental than the gift of justification. Something that would make justification possible. A deeper problem in the universe than your unrighteousness before God. There's a deeper problem than your unrighteousness. Okay. Verse 25. Whom, referring to Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God, as a propitiation through faith, by his blood for a demonstration of his righteousness on account of his passing over sins done beforehand. Now would you boil that down with me to the most basic problem the death of Christ was meant to solve. It isn't your unrighteousness. It isn't justification. It's something beneath that. God put Christ forward, it says, to demonstrate his righteousness. The problem that needs to be solved in the universe is the apparent unrighteousness of God. God's problem is a problem with his own appearance in the world, his fame. I gave this message the title, The Joy of God in His Fame. God is extremely concerned about how He comes across. Namely, He wants to be glorious. He wants to be known as glorious. He wants to be known as infinitely beautiful and valuable. And He wants to be known as right, as putting His affections on what is properly valuable. Something has created the, the impression that God is unrighteous and God is infinitely concerned to set that straight. That's why there was a cross first. Now, what created that problem? What created the problem that God looks unrighteous? God looks as though his, the infinite energies of his approval and his cherishing and his loving has been set upon something wrong. Or something beautiful and glorious has been walked right over, ignored, scorned, and he doesn't care about it. What created that problem? The last phrase of verse 25, as you can see, answers it very clearly. He wanted to do this, demonstrate his righteousness, on account of passing over sins done beforehand. Now, what does that mean? It means that for centuries, Psalm 103, verse 10 has been true. He does not deal with us according to our sins or requite us according to our iniquities. He just passes over them. And that's an outrage. That's an absolute moral outrage. Let me give you an example of, of, when, of the time that he did this. 2 Samuel 12. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and uh, to keep it quiet he had killed Uriah her husband. Nathan the prophet is sent from the Lord to confront David and he says to David why have you despised the word of the Lord? 
David feels the rebuke. He says in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. And to this, Nathan responds, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that. Just like that. Every bone in my Uriah-loving body says no. And it would in yours if the killer or the rapist of your daughter said, no problem, no problem, you're free. You can have another chance in the court. When, when Paul says in Romans 3.25 that the passing over of sins done beforehand is a reality, why is it a problem? Is it, let me ask you, is it felt as a problem by the secular mindset? Do you know any secular person who loses any sleep over the unrighteousness of God's kindness to them? That does any secular person labor like Paul seemed to over the problem that God is nice to people? The immensity of the problem of God's niceness. The injustice of his forgiveness. D does the secular mindset even begin to grasp what Paul is dealing with here? Can they even start to read this text? Will it make any sense at all? with man at the center. And of course we should be forgiven. Of course he should love. Well, that's the way God is. The, the, the blasphemy of it all. The secular mindset does not even assess the situation the way the biblical mindset does. Because the secular mindset has a radically different starting point doesn't start with God's creator rights and goals to magnify his glory. It starts with man and our self-determination and our needs and our expectations and he better not take my marriage or he better not take my child or he better not take my health or he better... The indignity of such talk. And everybody talks that. Inside and outside the church, he better own up to what I need. I have seen more marriages collapse as people put God in their little boxes and tell him what he's got to do in order to be what he should be. We are God in America today. Yeah. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's at stake in our sinning is the glory of God. You see that connection? All have sinned and fall short or lack the glory of God. We do not love the glory of God as we ought. Every act of sin is an act of belittling the glory of God. All sin is a preferring of something else to God. Which is spitting on God, slapping God, running the sword with the soldier up into his side because he died 
to have us be done with that. You remember what God said to David? I didn't read it. Let me remind you of it in 1 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel. God said, see, Nathan had said, why did you despise the word of the Lord? God said, why have you despised me? Me. Now, I can picture David hearing this. The prophet says, why did you despise me, meaning God? And David says, what do you mean despise you? I wasn't even thinking about you. I was red hot after this woman. And then I was scared to death and got rid of her husband. And I wasn't even thinking about you. How could I, what do you mean I despised you? And God would say, the creator of the universe, the designer of marriage is holy, the creator of life, Uriah's life, is in my image. I took you from being a shepherd boy and made you king. I have filled your heart with wisdom and I wasn't even in the picture. That's what I meant, David. You despised me. All sin is a despising of God, whether he's thought about or not. Therefore, the passing over of sin is an unrighteous act on God's part. Unless there's some way that it could be made right. The secular mind doesn't see this problem and therefore it can never ever cherish the cross. There isn't much cherishing of the cross today for what it was meant to do and be for us. According to Romans, the most basic problem that God solved in the death of his son was that Jesus' death for the glory of God enabled God to pass over sins and not be unrighteous. It, the death of the Son, was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time in order that he might be righteous. God would be unrighteous in passing over sins, yours and David's and mine if Jesus hadn't died to demonstrate that God does not take sin lightly. The point of the cross is God does not take sin lightly. God saw his glory being despised by sinners. He saw his worth being belittled, being trampled, being dishonored by sins. And rather than vindicating the worth of his glory by slaying his people, he vindicated the worth of his glory by slaying his son. He vindicated the worth 
of his glory by slaying his son. Jesus came into the world to reveal the infinite worth of God's glory. Picture him in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? Father, what shall I do? Shall I leave? Shall I stay? For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify me and your name. Now I want to urge you tonight to embrace this mindset, this biblical mindset, so that the ground of justification makes sense to you. And and to test you, try this. Do you feel tonight, wherever you are in your pilgrimage, do you feel that apart from the death of Jesus, God would be righteous not to forgive you? Or do you still feel like he owes it to you? Do you feel that God would be righteous not to forgive you? He'd be perfectly legitimate not to forgive you except for Jesus and his death. Do you feel it would be right that he could vindicate his righteousness by requiring of us a price of suffering equal to the infinite worth of the glory we have despised? That's hell. Hell is a requirement of a price of suffering equal, not more than, but equal to the value of the glory we have despised in our sinning. Everybody deserves hell in this room. Infinite, eternal torment because of the infinite value of the glory we have despised. When you look at the death of Christ, what happens? Does your joy tonight... Now, test, this, is, this is an effort to tap into a modern heresy. Does your joy really come from translating this awesome divine work into a boost for self-esteem? Or are you drawn up out of yourself when you look at the cross? Are you drawn up out of yourself and filled with wonder and reverence and worship that here in the death of Jesus is the deepest, clearest declaration of the infinite esteem of God For the glory of God. God valued his glory. His righteousness so highly. That he would demonstrate the value of it. At the price of his son. Does looking at the cross. Send your heart soaring. Toward the apex of the value. And the beauty and the wonder. Of the glory of God, that he would demonstrate the value of it at the price of his son. Does looking at the cross send your heart soaring toward the apex of the value and the beauty and the wonder of the glory of God? Or have you bought in to the distortion of the cross 
that puts you right at the center of it. This is an unspeakably wonderful truth. The foundation of our justification, which we'll approach tomorrow morning, our acquittal, our forgiveness, is not, the foundation is not a flimsy sentimentality in God. It is not a shallow claim of human worth. I guess I was worth it all after all. It is the massive rock of God's unswerving commitment to uphold the worth of his glory and promote the praise of his holy name and to vindicate his righteousness. The God-centeredness of God is the foundation of the grace shown to the ungodly. So I invite you to take your stand on it and to base your life on it and to ground your hope on it. And if you do, you will have a rock that is so solid, so unshakable, so massive that you will never fall. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I praise you and glorify you with these friends of yours. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But first, he came into the world to vindicate the worth of your glory. So that in the saving of sinners, it would be crystal clear that you are not sweeping sin under the rug. Nor are you despising your own name. Nor are you belittling the worth of your own magnificent fame. We bless you, Father, that all things come together in the cross. That there you have found a way to be both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. In his name we give you thanks and praise you. Amen.